You mean you say you, you were shocked when it broke down, you mean, at the end? Well, all these battles, I, I was quite shocked at the attacks on Mahoney. Because I didn't particularly feel that, you know, I knew what the real Bauhaus was. <laughs> I mean, I was just discovering, trying to understand this one. <laughs> yeah, that's what I was thinking when you were talking about everyone arguing about their idea, but they were all missing the fact that they were there now and they should deal with that. Yeah, but there are a lot of egos, you see, when you get a bunch of artists together, you, it's not rational. They all think they're rational, but they really are not. Two words never spoken. You know, it's, a, it's very rare, as a matter of fact, to get a group of artists together to talk rationally. Because all they do is say, I. You know, they never discuss what's going on, you know, what the facts what the situation really is about. They just use all situations as sort of a Rorschachian projection. This is what it usually boils down to. So, you would have gone back if you could have? Or oh, I can't answer that question because was, there wasn't anything to go back to. When I left, there was nothing to go but back to. But if it was there, you would have stayed on somehow. Oh, if it had continued on, I probably would have stayed on. That spring, you see, I went with, took my car, because I had a car, and Fritz Boltman and, and, uh, can't remember his name, young man from either Wisconsin or Minneapolis, and we drove down to New Orleans where Fritz Boltman's family lived. His father ran a funeral parlor, very rich. His sister was for many years the public relations person for the Metropolitan Opera. Muriel, Muriel Bolton, right. Wonderful gal. Uh, when I was there, first I discovered that Fritz owned 33 count of Kandinsky's, big ones. They bought in Germany for about $100 a piece. And while I was there, the two dealers, two brothers, Silverman Bolton brothers, a large gallery in New York came down there and I, I can't remember whether they're buying something they're gonna have a show or something. Um, Fritz's family knew all kinds of rich people and so does Fritz and I remember there was a some Greek oil guy by the name of Tellus if I remember and he had a yacht so we went sailing or something uh, on like Poncha train every day and the place of the thing was you know, the ballasts were, you know, just cases of whiskey and wine. And it was on that occasion, on one of these drunken brawls, or we'd go to the New Orleans uh, playhouse and carrying square, uh, soda, seltzer, seltzer bottles and sit in the balcony and squirt everybody down. It's totally <laughs> silly. And they had, this Tellus guy had two daughters who were wild wonderful. And they just <laughs> threw my Leica overboard and okay. father replaced it. You had contacts or you had Leica at this point? I can't remember. It was either contacts or Leica. Sometimes you could easily toss over. Yeah. <laughs> well, they happy. And I went to, see, it was very peculiar. In the South, and this is typical of old societies, really, if you are the friend of somebody who is in the group, you are accepted. Um, totally. If you are not the friend of somebody, you're totally 
unacceptable. It'll take you 20 years to penetrate that same mm -hmm. group. Now, I went to candlelit parties that could have been given in 1840. Mm. You know, there's a long table, flowers on the table, women dress up beautifully, mm. uh, good wines, maybe some music even, black waiters. I mean, there were family black waiters not brought in. Mm. Um, just what you've read about, you know, the myth, actually existed in New Orleans there for a while. Or I encountered some of it. This was right after school? No, this was, was the spring break. Yeah, spring break. Yes. And then we stayed down, stayed there for a while. And then, because we were curious, we drove to Black Mountain College. That was my first encounter with Black Mountain College that spring. So you really hit the experimental schools. That's right. Those were the two experimental spring. schools in America. Now, Black Mountain had just started about 32, 34, somewhere in there. Somewhere a, just a little bit before. Just a few years. Yeah. So it was a revolt of Rollins College. So Rice was still there at that point? And oh, yes. And we looked around at that thing, and it was, we weren't terribly impressed. It seemed to be slightly dislocated, but we were impressed by the fact that it was very beautiful and isolated, and everybody seemed to be studying. We were already getting rumblings that they had their difficulties, which later blew up. I mean, it took longer. It continued to blow up, actually. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but it was very exciting. See, I was interested in progressive education in America. I go to the Baos, which is a real revolution in education, and so it was no sweat for me to maybe drive a thousand miles with Fritz to go see Black Mountain College. I mean, when you're young, you do stupid things like that. How long did you spend there? Did you, I mean, did a couple you, days. So you would have met everyone more or less? Uh... Well, we would have gone around eating, and, you know, they had communal dining. And they were sort of secretive and very serious, and, you know, so it was quite sort of European in one sense, formal. It was a different kind of an atmosphere than... I guess Albers was always fairly reserved in European yeah. in his relations yeah. with everyone. And uh, that had an intellectual bent, you see, that the Nubals didn't have at all. It wasn't just an art school by any no, means. No, yeah. no, It was meant to be kind of a university of the future, just like the new school. See, in New York, it was formed out of all the European refugees that came here. Fantastic educations, teaching ability, and no place to, you know, to get a job. So that was organized. Mm -hmm. It was a real creation. And that helped change, you know, some things, just like all the artists that poured over here. Surrealism came into a fore in the 30s, from mainly from European Yeah, it, it just simply arrived. Right. Everyone came. Well, it wasn't native. That's quite a summer, that's quite a spring vacation. Well, it was, but, the, you know, we were full of pep and soft, we, you know. Hmm. It was my car, and so... I used it. <laughs> Did you go to California right right after that, or right around that period? Or no, or before something? that. That was when I was still in school. Still at Wayne. Jandy. Uh, uh, oh, okay, yeah. Yeah, you yeah Maxwell Fader. I can't remember the name of the other fellow on this trip. Nice, nice chap. Hmm. Well, then I we came back for that uh, last part of the spring, and there was so much fighting going on. Uh, Vicious, you know, really stuff that uh, it was kind of disrupted. 
wasn't wasn't possible to get work done the same way it had been before. Kind of. Well, no. It was there's a lot of agitation going on. Couldn't concentrate the same way. It was just like that. Why I was laughing at Freed, just talking to Freed. There's Schmacher, one of the architectural teachers on Friday. One of the ID teachers please asked the architectural students upstairs who were cutting something all, all over the place and they're having a critique in the basement. And so he went up and asked them quietly to please be quiet, and they didn't, so he stole their extension cord. And I guess Schmacher went down and smacked David, one of the teachers. <laughs> You want to repeat the remark you made about the, why the fighting is so uh, <laughs> so. <laughs> well, somebody once said that the reason the fighting in academia is so violent is because the stakes are so small. <laughs> <laughs> oh dear. Well, I guess the real one question that I mean I don't know what else or what more. You know, the sort of the summary question, if perhaps I don't know if it's we're right at that point, but is how did you feel after this period of time? What what, did, what kind of difference did it make in your own thinking? It made a great deal of difference. How could you characterize thinking. that difference? Well, because my worldview was very much expanded. One of the things that Noli did was constantly bring in visitors that were friends of his, famous people, and one of the men, for instance, was Herbert Reed, was a good friend of his. Right, it sponsored him for immigration to England, I believe. And so. Yeah, but they were good friends, and Herbert Reed certainly was a philosopher and a thinker, and interested in modern uh, education. He wrote many books, so Herbert Reed came and gave lectures. And speaking of lectures, during this semester, one of the funniest lectures I ever heard in my life was the one Archipenko gave. Archipenko gave a lecture on school tour, his own school tour. His own work. His own work. With thrown with some other slides thrown of other people's work. He had two projectors. Yeah. Both of them running simultaneously. And he gave a talk that had nothing to do with any picture that was being shown. <laughs> <laughs> well, that kind of thing went on every once in a while. Uh, I can't remember at this point whether Leger visited. I think he may have. I can't remember who, you know, who actually came, but that was terribly exciting. See, because in a real sense, Detroit was out of the mainstream. This was a cut above Adolf Fassbender and Ansel Adams. Oh, this had nothing to do with it. <laughs> that's what I said. It was a totally different world. This was the world of modern art. It had nothing to do with the backwaters of pictorialism. You know, photography is as uh, some kind of therapy for upper middle class and rich people. Uh, no, this was a real encounter with some of the exciting currents of what was going on in the 30s. And the power of it can be measured by the effect it had on education. Because people began to come after it was reconstituted. Uh, and this was all very slow happening. But they would come to summer things. And I remember somewhere along the line, I, I was not there, but Maholi and Kepish went out to Mills College and did a summer workshop there, mm -hmm. about six weeks, if I recall. Yeah, that's written about, Sybil's written about that. Yeah. Well, they went out there, and that was very important because it got mixed up with modern dance there again. 
and all the sort of avant-garde people on the West Coast. So it was not a local phenomenon we're talking about that, you know, was just doomed to failure. It was the big burgeoning seeds of what was to come. It's really an international thing that happened to be in right. Chicago. Right. Yeah. And it also, there was a side I haven't mentioned. Moholy was very politically active in the Hungarian, Hungarian movements around. Uh, it was terrible times for many immigrants. Mm -hmm. And he had, you know, scientific friends that he helped support or bring over or something. And he was very active politically in trying to help the anti-German... Uh, there was an organization that he was founding, founded, I think. Or I don't remember. remember. I knew Committee he, for a Democratic Hungary or something like well, that. Well, that would be just about right, even if there wasn't one. Yeah. But I, I remember taking him to meetings, even. I would drive him all the And I'd charge him. Uh, well, so, beyond this, this, um... Well, then there was great proselyting going on, too. Well, he would go out to all, any public school, high school, or suburb, or any, anybody that wanted a talk, Moholy, and I think maybe Kepish did a lot of this, too. They'd go out and talk. They were trying to get students. And he involved the whole began to involve the whole design community and architects. And he did have this group of industrialists, you see, at first. And they split up in this battle, but some of them stuck with Maholi, you know, and continued on. Mm -hmm. And that's another story, you know, the story of Pepke and right. Pussy, Maholi, Sybil. Um, It, it, it was a very powerful movement because it seemed very fresh, you see. It was another way of thinking instead of doing life drawings. Incidentally, we did do life drawings, but things like one of the problems was to make a thumbprint or fingerprint and then scale it up. You observed it and drew it very large, maybe 16, 20, mm -hmm. 20, I remember that. And that was, you know, really taught you to observe the relationship of those lines. Otherwise, you really screwed up your fingerprint. Mm -hmm. uh, there were color exercises, all kind of color exercises, which have continued to this day, you know, runs of cues and chromas and that kind of thing. Um, Moholy didn't know anything about the history of photography, for instance. He really knew nothing about it. He just knew what was going on and mainly looked, you know, at scientific photographs and anonymous photographs and police photographs, things like that excited him. In terms of what you would call knowing the history of photography, he didn't know anything about it. I doubt very much whether, uh, you know, his knowledge exceeded maybe knowing Ache. Because mm -hmm. many times I you know, supplemented some of his knowledge. He simply didn't know. I'm the guy, incidentally, that made him go to apologize to Stieglitz. In his book, you see, he had used one of Stieglitz's photographs of the As an example of pictorial. pictorialism. Right. And I explained to him that Stieglitz really was a very modern photographer. And that he, he simply didn't know what the hell Stieglitz was all about. And he did go to Stieglitz and he apologized. They were quite had quite a friendly chat. Visit. I don't know if that's mentioned anywhere, but he did. 
the yeah. Hmm. Well, did it beyond this feeling of just simply having your horizons expand, of having come in contact with the vitality of it and uh, the significance really of all this? Did it did it have any more specific effects on your your feelings about your own photography? I mean, how yes. how did that evidence itself? Or how you know? I felt freer to do what I wanted to do. I mean, it lifted the burden of the heavy burden of of. Uh, Of, I felt that pictorialism was wrong, but I didn't know what the other thing was. Mm -hmm. See, so it sort of lifted that burden that here was a whole group of people working in painting and architecture and, and sound, music, uh, that had another sensibility that was not directed at the 19th century, but directed at the 20th. It was my kind of music. You know, it was my kind of images. It wasn't something left over. And so it freed me very much that when I went to putting two negatives together, as I did, and did a whole series of them, uh, and printed them on glossy paper and printed them big, it was okay when the camera club people screamed. See, they kept talking about S curves still at that time. Triangle, what do you mean at that time? <laughs> triangle or, you know, composition. They were still, Henry Peach Robinson diluted, you know, organization, uh, composition talking yeah. of 1750. Or that's treatise on painting. Was still right. That was their god, you see, as diluted by H.P. Robinson. So it kind of validated uh, your natural reaction to these things and yeah. made it... It also relieved me, you see, Molly did documentary pictures. I mean, he did two books, one on Oxford and one on, I think, Cambridge. One on Street Markets of London. And one on Street Markets of London. He made these films. So he did both abstract things. He did real reality, you know, movies and things. So I felt, I had felt all right, I think, uh, in my, uh, in a funny way, I felt all right about doing pictures for time and doing my own things. But this only confirmed that in a real big way, it was okay to do what we call documentary photographs and also do what was then called art photographs. So let me... And what's gotten mixed up now, you see, is all the documentary art. You know, Walker Evans is shown in an art museum, sold as art, not as documentary. Nobody is buying Walker Evans' picture of a pe you know, an American peasant worrying about the American peasant. They're buying because Walker haven't seen something. It seems to me that really what you're, if I can paraphrase what you're saying and make sure I understand this, that the kind of, uh, well, in a sense, the breadth of Maholi's approach. Yeah, right or wrong, you see, because he was, he was mixed up. But the, the fact that he had done all these things and he had a kind of a, call it an integrating awareness of all these things, right. is, is what was perhaps the most single congenial thing to your own, at that point, already developed tendencies and the ways you were you were going off in, that maybe it made you less of a schizophrenic about the types of directions you wanted to go. That made you see it as well. It relieved any guilt that I had about uh, not conforming to what my elders in Detroit were trying to get me to. Mm -hmm. It enabled me to fight them much better. Could you see uh, concrete changes in your work while you were at the Bauhaus? I mean, did you notice any like drastic changes in your type of photography, or 
Was it a few years ago? thinking that we did photography. We did photography about a half no, day, no, 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 say day a week or something. That's not what I'm saying. It was just part of the curriculum. No, no I'm and not saying that. there were a series of problems. No, no, I'm not saying uh -huh. that, Arthur, at all. I'm saying is, as an outcome of this exposure to the environment, when you would go out and shoot for yourself, did you notice changes just in your approach to subject matter and the things you photographed? That's all I'm asking, not about... No, it, it became a little more conscious, that's all. I mean, like the idea of texture or something like that became a conscious thing, even though that was probably reductionist. That is, Weston used texture, but at the New Biles, we would just make a picture that really was only texture. There was no metaphorical intent. And completely formal. Formal or formal technical. It was to make a good rendition of the fabric, the texture of stone, whatever the quality of the, of the material was. That was the idea. But the point I'm driving at is beyond the assignments or the problems at the Bauhaus. Did you find yourself going off with your camera yourself and perhaps just you know, spinning off in different directions uh, outside of these assignments? Did you see a change from what you were doing? That happened after I left there. I mean, while I was there, I was more interested in listening to three guys talking and going out and making... I'd make work my assignments and sometimes they'd lead to something, but it was such a stimulating period. It's also a question that we, to answer properly, we'd have to assemble some groups of work and look mm -hmm. at that, yeah. in a sense. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm wondering if we maybe ought to quit here. Yeah. Well, let's just see if, a little more about this. Okay. Uh, it should be mentioned about my mother, for instance. You know, that happened. Quite, that was quite traumatizing. That's I, think, I think you, we you mentioned about that, that yesterday. Thing, but that happened there, too. Uh, other things that might be mentioned was there was no great discovery of Chicago then. I mean, we all just kind of stuck around that school. It's a colony. Yeah. There was very little going out. Uh, I think the, you know, there was quite a number of night people. They were mainly professionals that came in. They wanted... They had heard of Moley or Capish or something. And by that time, there was quite a bit of publicity in local papers and some professional magazines. Moley was a tremendous propagandist, just tremendous. And Capish wasn't bad either. Um, would, the, would that have been, and actually this could go back to what some of what we're saying about you, addressed more to the kind of of course, Maholi was doing consulting work for firms, for manufacturing yeah. companies. That was one of the reasons he was brought here. And, you know, they sort of paid him by getting consulting commissions. And the, um, he had a commission with the Parker Pen, for instance, right. that continued for a long time when he was responsible for the Parker 51. And did that, in your own mind, kind of correlate to the commercial photography you've been doing? In other words, to, to see that he was doing that as well as the painting and the yeah, plexiglass? I watched Maholi paint. And, what he painted never had anything, didn't seem to have anything to do with, you know, designing pens or something for Spiegel's furniture. Uh, see, the Barwa chair, for instance. I've forgotten exactly when it was invented. Do you know the Barwa chair? Uh, I don't know. It's the one that's sort of a lay-down thing. It can tip up and you're up, or you can mm -hmm. tip back and it's very comfortable. I'm trying to think of when those two guys were there. I better not say that the Barwa chair was invented at the, at the 
school of design or the new Bauhaus or something. Mm -hmm. And it all came out of the problems of bending pipes. How do you, you know, how can you take and bend a pipe? Or Niedringhaus became a tremendous expert on plywood. And all of these were not the high technology kind of machines that we had. They were primitive machines. All the, all the tools came from Sears Roebuck. They were absolutely the bottom. Mm -hmm. And they were, all, they constantly broke down. You know, they disintegrated. They were so cheaply made. But everybody got a sense of materials. It's very important. They got a sense of the history of art. They got a sense, when I say history of art, of what was going on currently from the 20s on. Not, there was no emphasis on, I don't think there ever was a course there taught that dealt with the Renaissance or anything like that. Everybody was sort of assumed to know that. <laughs> Really, uh, there's a great deal of reading going on, uh, and argumentation, you know, fermentation. Now, had you been pretty actively collecting photographic books by this time, yes. or did that come later? I don't know. Really, I was that. I've always been a self-teacher. So even though you didn't have all that much money in Detroit, you still that was one of the places your money went was to buying books. Oh, sure. That's why. I, have both the German edition and the French edition of the Ache book. I mean, my friend Jules has the, I gave him the German edition. Um, I have worn out my Man Ray book showing it to students. I was aware of those things. And uh, when I see the Jean May catalog, it's very interesting to me. I knew most of those names then. But already, I mean, see, I was already very conscious of the differences between American photography and French. And I thought the American was better technically, even though their system of education in Europe was technically oriented and professional, you know, much more rigorous with apprenticeships. But there was something about the American, you know, landscape photographers and Civil War photographers that I understood. It wasn't too conscious to me then, but mm -hmm. that's what I pulled together. That's what I consider my contribution to photographic, the photographic program. One was to make one, and two, to bring those two things together. The technical and the historical? Well, no, those two tendencies in photography of experimental and straight. Mm. No, in terms of photography okay. in general, there are you know, three aspects that I've been very concerned with all the time. And all my problems and everything have always dealt with their technical problems, their psychological problems, you know, their form problems. And they all, every problem includes all those three faces, and that's the basis of my education criticism. And you can't separate them out when finally they get together. We can discuss them, you know, artificially. Mm -hmm. Right, yeah. Did you keep up contact with Maholi pretty much after this? For me, Maholi came. No, Maholi came and visited me several times in Detroit as he was going to either lecture. I don't know where he lectured. Somewhere in Detroit, or maybe Birmingham, or maybe even Canada. Uh, but he did stop, and we did see each other. And I would drive him all around. I mean, I was his boy in Detroit, and whenever he came there, I just was delighted to see him and. Uh, you know. So you saw him periodically. Mm -hmm. This is before you went, before you left Detroit during yeah. the war, like. Right. No, he was very aware of me, and 
he'd like me. Now, the, in this period, you see, then afterwards, Nathan, I guess, was teaching, but to the best of my knowledge, I think Nathan was teaching in the workshop. What did, in the foundation course or something. That's what right. Say? That is a foundation. I think it's what he did say to me. I he mean, was he teaching. wasn't teaching photography. No, no, he was teaching the foundation course. Well, all I'm trying to establish is that Nathan always was in the kind of foundation course thing, mm -hmm. not photography. Mm -hmm. And I don't know at that point who was teaching photography. Other than just like Maholi's interest in Yeah, Maholi and Kepish. Kepish was there, so I suppose they continued. And I don't know when, when Henry left. I think Henry left after about another year or less. That's what I think. He went to Indiana. Yeah, I, I, Henry's somebody I'm going to try and go talk to. We could piece it together in those catalogs. Yeah, there's yeah. a lot of archival material that will answer questions like that. Could we get a piece Did together? you ever go, as I suggested, the Illinois Circle? I haven't had a chance to. Well, because I think that's, I have visited, but I understand that a lot of the material that was stolen wound up there. Stuff that was stolen from the school. But a lot of the material I have, which I'll show you at home tonight. It's from that man who... Uh, no, it's from Nathan, from Nathan, which Nathan let me use for the purpose of the interview. Yeah. Uh, you can go through that. He ends let me retain it. Yeah. You know, until we're through with the interview, and then I can use back. Watch yeah. the materials. It's a lot of the old catalogs and lists of teachers Watch and the courses. And He's going to knock everything over there if he goes one step further. Uh, from the summer workshop of 46. Um, well, should we um, maybe stop now? And, I don't know. Uh, we got we got to go. You, well, yeah. That's our module. we got to go some more. Well, it's almost 5 o'clock, though. Um, I mean, I just don't want to, I don't want to, on one hand, I'd love to take, had a pretty long day. take well, advantage of enthusiasm. I my limits, and now I'm okay You're cooking? Going. Yeah, so we'll go another well, 15 minutes. I may, so. I may uh, give out first, but okay, fine, let's, let's, let's. You young folks are <laughs> resilient. Well, the only thing, too, I want to say, too, is that I really... Have to get home at some point. Well, I have a, I have to finish that work for that the talk, and because I've got to pull slides tomorrow in with Charlie Traub and with the Art Institute, so I I do need about three hours. Basically, I'm, I put together a show for John Mulvaney called Focus on Chicago, and he wanted it as an educational show of women photographers. So what I did is I just asked everybody who basically is involved with teaching in Chicago, who I thought were relevant women. Mm -hmm. uh, I asked. Esther, because she's at Circle, she's the only woman at Circle, um, Sonia, Barbara Crane, Lynn Sloan Theodore, Barbara Carrant, uh, Joan Edmund. A few women I didn't ask, like Gail Rabini, I really didn't ask Gretchen Garner, I really don't see any relevance to their work. What about Thorne Thompson? I really don't think Thorne Thompson has done anything in the last year that... She certainly is all over the place. But her the same work, you know, it's like I can't, I can't justify showing that same old work again. Yeah, okay. Well, uh, it's new to them. They well, never saw it. But I have to keep that in mind too. But I mean, I really have my own like values, and I really believe that there's so much track, you know, you can cover with the same old work, and then I just say no, I don't want it, no matter who you are. And uh, what I'm doing is giving people a sense of. The last 10 years of development was taking place in Chicago with chronology. I'm going back to 67. I'm going to trace the Exchange Banks collection. I'm going to go through... Um, Got it. Okay. okay. And then I'm also going to show the work of the working faculty in Chicago, but in addition to 
like I'm breaking down the institutions and I'm going to show like Gerst work. I'm going to show work of um, Joe Jackman. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and, you know, break it down like that and then sort of make my own opinion of what I see Chicago as as a photo center in relationship to other centers in the, in the country. Got it. Okay, let's try and move ahead on this a little bit. Okay. Well, I have a question if you uh, want to move ahead on this, which is um, that we've talked around pretty thoroughly, but um, th this, this whole question, and we can comment through time here, about personal work versus commercial work. Um, I mean, certainly today, this is a thing that a lot of people experience as a kind of an alienation, you know, oh my God, I have to do this during a living, but I really want to do this, you know, and that's a big problem for a lot of people. And you've already made reference to yourself having these two different areas you were working in. Um, yeah, but I didn't feel any sense of that. How early did you sense? I thought a good job was, you know, I had a really good problem to solve. It was really kind of a marvelous challenge. And I think this was a commonplace thing. That's the way Steichenfeld, even though we knew the difference between, hi, even though we knew the difference in our uh, intent, mm -hmm. That is one we were doing to solve a problem that involved money. The other we were trying to solve a problem that involved ourselves as, you know, clients, you want to put it that way. We were the sole judge, whereas the other thing had to do if we were in Vogue magazine, you know, it had to appeal to the people that were going to buy a fur coat or a dress or the art director or whoever knows, whatever. But that didn't mean that Steigen didn't think his pictures were good. Don't ever kid yourself. He thought his portraits were damn good. And those are all commercial portraits. He was paid for them. He never knew them. He never thought about them. He didn't need them beforehand, you know, all that jazz. He had a job to do. They came up to vote. His, you know, five assistants pulled the lights out. And he tried to make a picture that was exciting enough to print on in that very valuable space. And he was under no illusion. Is that how you felt then about the commercial work you were doing, or, or certainly not? Somewhere. I was not a high-class photographer like Steichen was. I mean, Steichen was a really exceptional, you know, uh, personage, mm -hmm. a man of tremendous power. I never had his kind of power or drive. And you were working in a journalistic area yes, primarily. Yes, and I thought that was okay. Or if I did, uh, oh, I did a lot of things. I mean, I pioneered candid wedding photography. Now, many people will say that, but I insist that Stryker hired me. I started working for Stryker because of my wedding pictures in Gross Point. How, where would he have seen those? Or how did that? I mean, that seems very uh, kind of unlikely in the face of I don't know. I think I sent them to him. I sort of felt that. Uh, uh, you know, all these pictures were of poor people. <laughs> you wanted to balance out of them. Well, I thought there was another kind of life. That's what my sociology, see, mm -hmm. that's where that comes in. I, when people say, you know, there's only one kind of subject matter for photography, that, that turns me off. Hey, were you familiar with Stryker's economics text? The, uh, where he was... The you know, economic geographies? He did, he did um, one I'm thinking of, I forget what it's called. Yeah. It's called like the Economics of America or yeah. something. And he's got, you know, he did the pictures primarily. He worked yeah. with uh, Arthur Austin. Arthur Austin was a student of his at Columbia. And there's a lot of Burke White and a lot of Hine yeah. in it. Yeah, pick up stuff. Right? Yeah. 
Uh, I don't know if I was. I don't think so. Behind yeah, in a pickup stuff. Right? Yeah. And, uh, I don't know if I was. I don't think so. Yeah. I mean, by that time, I was certainly aware of Farm Security Administration. Okay, well, this is a very, this is a somewhat confused period from, from my viewpoint, because you come back from Chicago in June or so of 38. Yeah. And you're in Detroit up until sometime around 41, 42, when you, or you're based in Detroit, when you, until you, you go to work for OWI, where I assume you moved out of Detroit to do that work. Is that true? Well, before I went to Washington, I did a lot of work. And for some reason, which I can't remember, and there, this is a little confusing. See, I thought, I've always thought I was the last photographer hired by Farm Security. But it was at a transition point, you see, that June or, or something. In 41 or 42? 42. Yeah. It became the Office of War Information. It became the propaganda arm of the United States government and absorbed OWI. Uh, absorbed Farm Security Administration, and uh, you can get this probably. Jess Gorkin, who's the publisher of Parade Magazine, was one of the real uh, heads of OWI. He was all split up into radio, media, and print, and Mm -hmm. I mean, we did all kinds of dumb things, including, you know, dropping, uh, what are you using, sewing that you put over your finger? Thimbles? Thimbles all over South America or something, you know, with little propaganda leaflets attached. <laughs> um, but as you, well, that's getting in the striker later on, but before I ever went there, and as far as even back to 39, I think, I was doing work for striker, little jobs that I was just paid for by the government. Kind of like you were a... Freelance, another freelance job. Freelance employed by FSA. Yeah. When Stryker was in Washington. So yeah. that a lot of the... I see. So it was FSA assignments from the, just from like from Michigan in the region, like the show that they just had in Detroit. Yeah, which surprised me. My friend Jules actually caught my name on that thing and was surprised because, see, they, people like this guy that wrote The Division Shared leaves me out. And I sure as hell was working for Stryker 42 and 43. But he puts John Vashon in, but he leaves me out. You weren't a staff photographer in this Well, I was time. in 42 and 43, right, but not but, then. Yeah. yeah, but I did do work beforehand. See, there are a number of guys that pop in and out of farms. There's a lot of names that don't appear that much. Yeah. And uh, that still don't... And I can't say that I did a fantastic job there, but I did do one. I mean, I'm still very proud, and I think it's a terrific job. Uh, Bethel and Fairfield Shipyards, where I spent about six six weeks, four weeks, six weeks. Where where is that? Is that in there? That's in the farm or OWI or Library of Congress files. Mm -hmm. That's a terrific job of photographing how uh, these ships were Liberty ships were put together by assembling modules into greater and greater modules. One of the things I did, which you, know, you have to be absolutely insane, was to have me build, have them build me a little uh, steel a box, maybe about uh, six feet by, or yeah, maybe six feet by three feet wide, and I had two of the cranes, you know, one on each side, 
hoisting it up in the air so high, and I did this 16 times, I got into this goddamn thing, that I could photograph the entire ship looking down at it on the waves in different stages of construction. Well, when I got through that day, I was a basket kid. I mean, there I am, you know, this stuff is something that just welded up for me. And I'm sitting up there maybe 16 stories high or something. Anyway, that's a good thing. I make a lot of portraits. They're very nice portraits. Uh, I use a graph, a three and a quarter, four and a quarter graphics, I guess, and maybe a three and a quarter, four and a quarter Linhoff. And uh, there wasn't anything in that shipyard that I missed. How many pictures did you shoot on that kind of assignment? Oh, I shot a couple hundred. Certainly a couple hundred, yeah. That was, I remember that with pleasure. So some of the commercial things and people we were talking about yesterday, as we said yesterday, do overlap on into this whole period bef before you leave um, to become a staff member at OWI or whatever. Yeah. And um, uh, I'm interested in, in to what extent you have any of this stuff or any records of this stuff at all. I mean, from the standpoint, anything, you know, like checks and letters even or uh, negatives. I think you said when you move from Detroit, a lot of this stuff might have gotten yeah, disappeared. Well, I have a lot of negatives around. We'll have to look through them at some point. Um, it wasn't that I didn't keep my things organized. Uh, the time and my availability was... See, as I mentioned before, I've always done everything. You know. Um, I have some things around. And uh, I'm sure more will come if I, you know, explore. Yeah, in fact, in terms of ex exploring, um, Elaine and I were talking about maybe uh, tomorrow, if it's feasible, if it's, if it's convenient for tomorrow? Tomorrow's Tuesday. Tuesday, yeah. That um, maybe if, when we had talked yesterday about starting to interview at the same, approximately the same time to or so, if it would be possible or convenient for me to come a little early or a couple hours early or somewhere in that range yeah, and I go through stuff. Yeah, I think you must do that. Because uh, I want to start doing that. It's uh, something uh, else again. And I think you have to, you know, sort of scotch around and uh, see some of the stuff. Now, in terms of later on, you see, I have a uh, uh, little cash book where I recorded mm. every job, I think. So most of the commercial work from later is recorded. Later is sort of recorded. I'm, there should be some correspondence between those time dates and what I got paid. So it gives a sort of picture of what a freelance photographer mm -hmm. did then. But there's nothing like that correspondence. And the pity of it is, I mean, I had, I just threw out batches of telegrams that mm -hmm. were around, but what in the hell did I need them? You know, yeah, so really. There's no point in keeping them after a certain point. Uh, just out of curiosity here, since we're talking about this freelancing, is what kind of money did you get for the kind of work you were doing in those days? And what was a good payment for a picture in time? Or what did you get paid for it? Or was there a difference between those two? I mean, what was, you know? Oh, I don't remember exactly, but it was probably about 25 bucks. That was for like a, for time, like? Yeah, time. Yeah, or just for an assignment. That, 
Oh, I did things for life, and uh, some of them were full-page pictures, and we got space rates, which at that point probably were about maybe 200, 250 the way it went up. Uh, and there's a whole thing there, you know, Morgan and Morgan and Morgan was one of the other photo editors of Life, so we got to know him. John Morris, I think, was somewhere in there. And, uh, when you came back from Detroit after being in Chicago for a couple months, you were able to pretty much pick up the contacts you had. Sure. There was no problem. And then I used to go to New York all the time. Pardon me? I went to New York all the time. I tried to make some contacts, showed my picture. But Just, so I also, <laughs> to, to show the continuity of the thing, I would see Stieglitz or somebody equivalent to Stieglitz. I'd go see a couple of magazine editors or photo editors. I'd go see movies. I'd go to the Museum of Modern Art. Yeah, I'd go eat. I'd go see girls, you know, that I knew, or boys. I mean, friends. Mm -hmm. so it was very exciting, very busy, and uh, I felt pretty good about myself. So you got to New York fairly often? Very often. No sweat. Either drove or got on the train. And felt very comfortable, you know, because I had a great deal of journalistic experience and art experience. And um, you were going to—you deferred yesterday uh, or the day before talking about your contact with Stieglitz. Maybe that would be a thing to put in here, and then we could. Uh... Well, there's not, you know, a hell of a lot to tell about Stieglitz, excepting very early. I started seeing Stieglitz maybe in the thirty-three or four. And as I said, he wouldn't know my name. We never had that kind of relationship. He knew me. He knew my face. He recognized you recognize someone oh, came in the gallery. Yeah, but I was a young punk, and I was very definite. Stieglitz awed me. He was kind of a... Uh, they say I scare people, but Stieglitz really scared a lot of people. Uh, and he was a real guru. I've never been a guru. He was sit in the back, you know, and he wore his capes and people hovered over him like Dorothy and Norman and there was some guy that was always around me. Seligman maybe or something? No, not Seligman. Somebody else. Can't remember his name, but that's all down. And uh, I have something Stevens gave me, a written thing. Somewhere. What was the occasion? Mm. I don't know. I think I probably asked him to write something for me. And he did. He had beautiful handwriting, as you know. Um, see, and I was so aware of Stevens. You find you may find this impossible to believe, but I bought a set of camera work on the installment plan from a rare book collector over a period of three years, paying him ten dollars a month. When I was in the midst of the Depression. When it's a bound set with a couple of the, the strand things were missing and I just uh, bought some free, you know, loose ones and it's not complete in the measure of my uh, kind of a guy I am. A couple of years ago there was an auction of Stieglitz's brother's effects. Stieglitz was a, a Dr. Stieglitz who was at the University of Chicago. And I went down there and Jim Newberry was looking at it. And these were really unique, but they were two Stieglitz's brother. 
And Jim wanted them desperately. Now I find he has three sets. I didn't know that at that time. So I said, oh, hell with it. Uh, and he bought it, I guess, with $700 with more material than just this thing. That was his first set? set, though, at the time. What? That was his first set at that time. Uh, the Brandeis book sale has been good to him after that. Really? Well, that's astounding. But anyway, you know, I'm not a collector. Would you bought this through your friend uh, Schumann, who was the book dealer in Detroit, or for somebody else? Did I buy it for him? No, no, I bought it from him. No, no, I bought it from a collector, a man who's head of the community fund, mm. or whatever. In, in Detroit? In Detroit, a man named Frost, mm. who got tired of it or something and decided to sell it. Mm. Or heard I was a young guy interested in photography. Collectors are nuts. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes, it's true. It's well documented. Well, you know, I was with Beaumont all through the Boyer thing. And Boyer was batty as a fruitcake. Yeah, Nobby Clark was saying he had trained dogs. He used to take around with him, and he just had them get out and do a show, and then he put him back in his car. <laughs> yeah, well, he would order whole sets of lenses, every focal length of Schneider Tessar or something. And they were in you know, some case sitting there in the midst of the books. The place was chaos. And he took and wrote in all the books, as you know, where he disagreed with something. Yeah, he just right. took you know, Daguerrean man or something wrote it. Anyway. Well, listen, why don't, why don't we uh, call it a day here? Alrighty. Speaking of mad collectors, the maddest collector from Chicago sends his love to you today. Well, thank you. Where did you see Arnold? Arnold called up just to say hello to me. Oh, in, the, in the middle of one of his tires. Yeah, I had an un, un, 